0: In recent years, we've had a series of leaks of documents showing how the rich hide their wealth around the world and deprive their countries of large amounts of tax revenue in the process. First, there was the Panama Papers in 2016 and the Paradise Papers in 2017, and now we've just had the Pandora Papers, another huge leak by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. What do these leaks tell us about the way the world really works? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Katarina Pistor is Edwin B. Parker, Professor of Comparative Law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches corporations, comparative law, and law and capitalism. She also serves as a member of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia. Her research focuses on comparative law and and institutional development, with special emphasis on corporate governance and financial market development. Professor Pistor has published widely on comparative legal developments, and her most recent book is The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us today, Katharina Pistor, about these uh, developments in wealth and taxation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you. So... As I mentioned in the setup, in recent years, we've had all these uh, leaks of, you know, huge caches of documents revealing how, you know, wealthy people hide their assets, as we say, offshore, at least in other countries, um, in order to avoid paying taxes on them. And it seems to me at one level, this is hardly news. I mean, the rich always, it seems, take advantage of opportunities to avoid paying taxes. But maybe you could explain to us you know what we've learned from these uh document leaks and what they tell us about as i say how the how the world really works
1: so i think it's it's really nothing new that the wealthy are trying to uh, avoid um paying taxes and sometimes also evade paying taxes and i think the paradise papers and the earlier revelations were in part also about clearly illegal schemes um they might have employed lawyers as well but not all of what they did was at least from a formal legal point of view, um, legal. I think the Pandora papers for all their, uh, the new information about certain individuals have had less of an impact than probably did the Paradise papers because the quick defense by almost everybody who had been implicated in the Pandora Papers, was it was especially to claim it is legal. So what's the problem here? And tax lawyers being interviewed um, in major news outlets also said it's, it's it's legal. So so what's really the problem? So in that sense, um, uh, what I think these parad the, the Pandora Papers are telling us is just the uh, the scope, the number of people, the breadth of people that are using these kind of devices to avoid paying taxes.
0: I mean, Donald Trump famously said that not paying taxes made him smart. To some degree, you sort of say, well, of course, I mean, this is what people with tax lawyers and that sort of thing, that's what they do. Uh But there, as it happens, there's an, uh, a piece in this morning's New York Times by an editorial board member named Benjamin uh, Applebaum, in which he argues that, you know, paying taxes is really about solidarity. It's about kind of the uh foundations in a way of a democratic society that people are making you know their fair contribution to the way things uh, are paid for uh could you talk a little bit about that idea
1: so i think it's a it's a it's a it's a good idea for a democracy i think we all should um make sure that the government has some resources and that we share also our burden in terms of providing the government with relevant resources to provide certain services um, I, I would just remind ourselves that, of course, tax evasion and ta- tax avoidance is much older than democracies are. So the rich have done this, you know, for centuries. And, um, in our democratic age, we are trying to think about the law and what you can or can not do in different ways. But we really haven't changed fundamentally the legal tools that are available for the rich to continue what they've always been doing. So for them, democracy might just be, you know, another nuisance, sort of the, the moral argument that comes with a democratic argument that, you know, they really have an obligation to pay. It's not just like a, an autocratic state that is grabbing their assets, but it's actually, uh, you know, everybody is sort of here in a legal community, in a democratic and a polity together. and We should share the burden is sort of just another argument um that uh, tries to put some burden on them, which they're
0: trying to avoid. I mean, do you see these schemes of tax avoidance uh, as, you know, particularly bound up with our current sense that, you know, certainly American democracy is kind of in crisis and that there are real questions about its survival um, that people certainly I never imagined myself asking uh, as I was growing up, Um, you know, is this part of the crisis that we're having?
1: I would say yes, because I think um, it it shows like the depth of uh, an unwillingness to, you know, share the burden of living in a society together. I mean, in in order to do what you can read up in the Paradise Papers is, um, you have to use legal tools. So you want to rely on a legal system and you want to also rely on the legitimacy and the authority of the law for shifting your accounts to other Jurisdictions and to have that recognized by whatever tax authorities are trying to get after your assets, so it 's not just that you do something that is available in the free market you're actually employing a legal system which is sponsored by democratic polities in a particular way while you're at the same time saying, "But you can't tax me or you can't regulate me or I can pick and choose the laws by which I wish to be governed, but not everybody else can do that and clearly, if everybody was allowed and enabled to pick and choose the laws by which they want to be governed, we couldn't have a community in society at all. So some who have the resources to do those pick and choose and they avoid everything and, and even think that they're terribly smart, but they clearly have no sense of solidarity or responsibility.
0: So I've already mentioned that uh, Donald Trump was one of these people, as we discovered in the course of various investigations. Um, But I wonder whether that isn't, in fact, partially a source of his appeal to his supporters, um, that you know, they see him precisely as this successful businessman and what successful businessmen do is, you know, avoid paying taxes. I mean, does that seem right to you? And, you know, does it tell us anything about populist uh, politicians elsewhere? I mean, you're in Germany, uh you know, maybe not necessarily in Germany. This might make somebody popular, but maybe in Hungary it does. I don't know.
1: So I think there's a combination of several factors. Um, um, I'm not sure, you know, that uh, too many would really agree that uh, not paying taxes or evading taxes with very sophisticated schemes is just okay. Um, With Trump, I think it's a combination of the tax avoidance schemes is also the way he has basically, um, you know, just... Stuck it to his creditors more generally, also private creditors. You know, he went through bankruptcy several times and basically showed that you can actually, as a debtor, you can, you know, can, you can be a, a king of debt and, and you won't be caught out by either private creditors or tax authorities. And I think one has to read this in the context, especially in the United States of a country where many people are deeply in debt and can't get out. And seeing somebody who just says, you know, just, 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 you know, just get around it. You can, and you can get around it if you're smart enough, like I am, is, has a certain appeal. But I think the background story to that is a complicated one. It's one where, you know, people are just out on their own and they're trying to, you know, take the system for a ride right and take others for a ride right so that they can get a little bit ahead of others. And I think the appeal that Trump ha- has, I think, gives me a sense of the lack of credibility or political and legal system has. So this goes back to what you just said, you know, the democratic democracy is in crisis. And and, and these are symptoms of a crisis, of a lack of trust in the institutions and and a lack of trust in our fellow citizens that they do the right thing as we are trying to do as well.
0: Right. You know, beyond Trump, uh, I'm sort of curious whether there were names that popped up in any of these leaks that, you know, sort of surprised you. I mean, I glanced through the list of names that were mentioned in the Pandora Papers and came across, I think it was the Pandora Papers anyway, uh, and came across the names of Sherry and Tony Blair. Uh, mm-hmm. Tony Blair, famously, uh, prior Prime Minister of uh, the UK, uh, in the Labour Party, no less. Uh, any surprising names that you came across?
1: Well, I think of Blair stood out to me as well. It's basically, it's the you too move, move, um, moment, right? Not the me too moment, but the you too moment. So you too, Mr. Blair, you too are availing yourself of the tools that are typically available for the rich and famous in this world. And you have no, um, shame to do the same thing, even if you are the former labor leader and you're still trying to portray yourself as a progressive. I think that's, that's probably the, you know, I think I said earlier, um, so the breadth of the problem, how many people just as a just a normal thing, you just avail yourself of these devices and the defense is the same. It's even not even shameful anymore to do this, which is it's legal. So we just buy a company we buy the shares of the company rather than the asset itself and thereby avoid real estate taxes. And, you know, everybody's doing it. We're doing it too. And I think we, what we're seeing here is an erosion of also of moral standards of how far you push it and an erosion also of the sense that, you know, law, you can always bend and mold and do all kinds of things. And there's always the formalistic reading of the law and there's a more normative reading of the law. And if you push the form, you can just leave the morals and the norms behind and, and that, you know, people who have had this sort of high level, you know, appeal of doing something for labor and for the people otherwise left behind just are part of that. You know, it's like, yeah, you too, Mr. Blair.
0: So it is, uh, interesting permutation of Me Too. Um, In any case, um, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the consequences of these schemes for the countries that lose the income. I mean, I think Emmanuel Zayas, this uh, economist at Berkeley, uh, has estimated that it's many trillions of dollars that countries forego on the basis of these schemes. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the impact of these schemes on the countries that lose out the the tax revenue?
1: So I think the numbers are really difficult to pin down. So you get different estimates, right? Sort of um, some say it's in the 400 billion, others you know, say it might be trillions. The, truth of course is that we don't know everything. Even with all the leaks that have happened and all the investigative journalists trying to find out how much it really is and who was involved, we're just getting what we are getting through the leaks and we have no clear idea how deep it is. So it might be somewhere in the you know between five hundred billion and going into the trillion um, and, and of course, this is, you know, when you just think how you could translate this into public services that could be provided, health services, vaccines that you could buy, you know, nurses that you could hire. It's quite a sum of money. You know, in, in, in the scheme of the U.S. federal budget, it might not sort of stand out as a huge, huge number, but it's substantial money and money that is very often cut from social services and thereby also discredits very often what the government actually does for the people. The government does less and less for the people because it's saving, you Now it has sort of overextended itself in COVID. Now we're cutting back. Austerity is looming in the background. At the same time, we're seeing that the richest people plus those who are sufficiently sophisticated or have law- lawyers on their side to do this are also trying to get um, away from the obligations that they owe to others. And so I think, Maybe more than just the money itself, I think it's really the the erosion of trust in systems. It's the delegitimization of, of state authority and solidarity amongst people that I find uh, most deeply problematic because it's really eroding our sense of um, uh, democratic community.
0: Right. So... You know, these, this series of leaks has uh, told us a lot about how wealthy individuals hide their assets. Um, but we've also recently seen a big deal that came together through the OECD and very much was promoted at the behest of the United States, a hundred, a hundred and thirty six country deal. That sets a minimum 15% global corporate tax tax rate and empowers governments to tax multinational companies such as Amazon and Facebook in the countries where their goods or services are sold, regardless of whether or not the company has a physical presence there. Now, the deal has certainly had its critics, so I wonder what you think of the deal.
1: So I think my first reaction to the deal coming through is that I was positively inclined because I think it's a good sign that countries got together and agreed some new principles for international taxation. So the principle for international taxation that we lived by or still live by until all these, um, you know, um, arrangements have been ratified. Or implemented by different countries, is um, uh, uh, our tax principles we developed a century ago. And a century ago, everybody agreed that you have to have a physical footprint in a country so that the country can levy taxes on you. And that's an old-fashioned world, right? That's really where people, if they did some transnational activities, they would actually move physically in some way. They would have a plant there. They would have people on the ground. And that was the precondition, essentially, for taxing. But in our digital age, that's of course foolish to hold on to physical footprints. So the idea that you say, we will tax you when you actually are making money on our customers who live in this country is sort of a new way of thinking about international taxation. I think that's important. It's a positive step in the right direction. Uh, The OECD has been working on this for many years. Trump tried to get out of it. And then the French and a number of other countries said, but France was the lead saying, well, if if we don't get the OECD principles through, we do this on our own, just France will tax. And I think that big tech companies don't really want to be taxed differently by 34 different countries or more. And that's why in the end they supported a deal. But it's under this sort of this this is a bargain that goes back and forth that they finally cut the deal and of course the only way they got all the countries they needed on board, including tax haven countries, including Ireland and Estonia, also Hungary that are offering tax um incentives for companies to come their way, they had to lower the tax rate. And so at fifteen percent, I would agree with many critics, um, that's, you know, a really low rate. I mean twelve percent was in the In in the discussion as well. So it's a bit better than that. But it's clearly much below, you know, the 24, 25 and and that range, even the 27 that Trump implemented under his own tax um, uh, reform uh, earlier in his um, in his administration.
0: Right. So uh, even though this isn't really meant as an interview about your book, I'm curious how all these uh, issues that we've been discussing so far, you know, relate to the arguments of the Code of Capital. I mean, it's an arresting, particularly the subtitle, I think, is arresting how law creates wealth and inequality. And at least on the wealth side, you might say, well, most people think, you know people create uh, wealth uh, but w- what's the argument about how law creates wealth?
1: Well, law creates wealth because it um, it basically puts certain types of um, Objects or claims or ideas on legal steroids by giving them certain types of protection. If you have property rights protection, you're better off than if you don't. If you can collateralize an asset, you're better off than if you don't. Um, if you can um, um, avail yourself of a trust or corporate form, that's critical for evading, uh, avoiding taxes for both, especially if you want to have legal tax avoidance. What you do is you take what I call the modules of the Code of Capital, certain legal devices such, such as a trust. Or, a corporate form, because you can shift assets behind a different legal wheel, you can separate your assets and put them into different legal persons because we can create legal persons and you can create multiple legal persons and you can shift different assets to them and back and forth into the jurisdiction where you have the best tax treatment for them, um, and you might um, even you know organize like reverse mergers that were under discussion during the Obama administration, all kinds of sophisticated transactions. For these transactions, you use what I call the modules of the code of capital. These are legal devices that allow you to avoid responsibility, liability, to arbitrage the legal system while still using its power to create private wealth. So it's the same argument that I made earlier. You need the law. You need the backing of the state to do a legal scheme that is, in principle, formalistically legal and therefore also enforceable. Right. But at the same time, you're saying, but we don't want the state to come after us and impose taxes or impose regulations. So you want to have the cake and eat it too. And the code of capital tells you exactly how this is done. Taxes come at the back end. I'm basically describing already how wealth is created, but the same, the same legal devices are also to use to hide wealth and thereby prevent tax authorities or too many different creditors from putting their hands on that on that wealth. And that's how you accumulate more. And that's how it grows more. And that's how you have then a a comparative advantage over everybody else.
0: So what about the inequality side of things? I mean, you can sort of see from what you've said, uh, how that might happen. But, you know, that's an even bigger claim, it seems to me that law creates inequality, since after all, isn't law supposed to be the same for everybody?
1: Well, we're basically saying everybody's equal before the law, but it's formal equality before the law. And it doesn't tell you who has better access to transactional lawyers, attorneys, solicitors and others to devise these schemes that allow some to avoid their responsibilities or get better rights. And if you have better rights, the legal system will not look further and simply enforce them. And you might actually have, you know, substance-wise, normatively not a much better claim, but you just have the legal tools to code them in such a way that you have a stronger claim. And at the back end, those, you know, who are on the inequality front, they just don't have the same access to the lawyers. They might not have the resources to even make it worth their while. So if you want to use these tax avoidance schemes that we're talking about in the Pandora paper, you must have tens of millions of dollars to make it really worth your while. Well. Before that, you just pay your share. <laughs> you always pay your share, right and uh, and that's sort of where then uh, income levels also diverge because if you can't some can avoid and the richer, more resource, wealthy people can avoid taxes in this fashion everybody else has to pay, then you can't ever catch up right The divergence increases over time.
0: Yeah, you say uh, in the opening pages of the book that uh, the whole thing really came to, you know, your mind in a way by as a result of the 2008 financial crisis. And obviously that was a sort of watershed event when, as you say, the world economy was sort of hurtling towards disaster, towards the abyss. And, um, you know, we've been living with the consequences of that uh that disaster for a long time um i i wonder whether i mean first of all the question in, in a way is about politics i mean yes these things get codified in law but before that in a certain sense there's a political uh process that plays out that results in these laws and you know and of course there was a lot of uh unhappiness at the time about, you know, bankers being able to keep their houses in the Hamptons while lots of ordinary people lost their their shirts and their houses. Uh, and I guess I wonder, you know, whether you see it that way, in fact, and to what extent you think we're in a different political climate maybe now.
1: So I think the first thing I would like to clarify is that um the way the, the institutions that I describe as the modules of the Code of Capital precede democracy. Uh, they're part of the common law, um, and uh, they actually have a feudal background and have never been changed. So there's, what well, if you like, there's a kind of a shadow <laughs> legal system, but it's not actually shadowy. It's it's, it's central to our private um uh, law system and central to our market economy, but they have always been um uh they always evolved outside much of the political political intervention um the the, the federal a system in the United States doesn't even have jurisdiction over these things. They have them at the state level. They could intervene sometimes, but they rarely actually touch these institutions. They're almost treated like holy cows that we don't touch. We regulate sometimes. So we're trying to push back the effects of using these institutions through regulators and administrative means, etc. sometimes also through taxation, doing some redistribution. But we don't touch the very source of wealth, and, and, and that's out there. And that hasn't changed after the 2008 crisis. The same mechanisms that were used to create fancy derivatives during the crisis have morphed and are now being applied to other types of assets. We're doing this now for ordinary corporations, not only for financial intermediaries. We're just flipping some of the strategies so we can get around the last regulations. But fundamentally, the system that I describe in the book, has not changed after 2008. And and again, I think the reason for that is that people still treat the institutions of private law as sacrosanct and that there has to be private autonomy. People should be able to pick and choose. But the the result of that necessarily is something that we read then about in the Pandora Papers because these are the tools that they use to get around local tax rules and shift their assets to the Caymans or Jersey or Cyprus or Ireland or or whatever jurisdiction you're talking about.
0: Interesting. So, um, I mean, one of the things that uh happened after 2008 was that banks were required to have more assets, you know, on hand. Uh, they couldn't play around with them as much as they had been doing before 2008. I mean, ha- and my sense is that that has also sort of gradually eroded over time. I mean, are you worried that th- those kinds of that there are lots of sort of unsecured, uh, uncollateralized assets are floating around out there and that we could be in trouble for another kind of 2008 experience?
1: So I think that, that the banks have, be, have been made forcefully more resilient through the mm-hmm. regulations I just described, having just more assets on hand, basically, to, to have a buffer if things go wrong. And so we have regulated the banks. But the the tools that they used that they could embrace much more readily earlier are used now by spin-offs from these banks they had they sold many of the operations that did this in-house they're now doing it on the market you see sort of in fintech no kind of vulnerabilities coming about so the entire what we call the shadow banking system the banks, the official banks were deeply implicated in participating in the shadow banking system. They had to clean up their balance sheets a little bit. They're still funding them indirectly, but they're creating enough protection so that the banks won't falter. And beyond the banks, most regulators says, well, that doesn't matter really because uh, there are no depositors. And so we don't have to worry about them losing money and the other investors should just know what they're doing. But at the same time, they have basically they're tolerating and legitimizing the very machine, the very tools that allow you to create private wealth with a social resource called law. So that's continuing. And I think it also, it's not only that it continues to create inequality, it also creates vulnerability in sectors where we just don't even see it yet. And we don't understand because we don't have disclosure disclosure and transparency what the spillover effect might be, even for banks who might have exposed themselves more to some risks um, and therefore might be more vulnerable than we can currently see. But I think in general, there has been an improvement for the banks, but not for the financial
0: system as such. Right. So what, Maybe I could ask you what, you know, reform do you think is most important and urgent uh, for us to undertake right now?
1: So I do think that we should, this goes back to the tax issue, that we should have, you know, um, more thoughts about, whether or not we recognize a legal entity that claims to be a corporation that is in the Cayman Island, it's just a shell company. Everybody knows it's a shell company. It has the same board of director like everybody, every other company in this jurisdiction, the same, no employees, nothing. Everybody knows it's a shell. Why do we recognize this in law? We should not. We should just cut through and say, well, who's your parent and who's the parent of that parent? And we tax you. So that requires a little bit more investigation, but I think we are legitimizing these structures because we we are saying that's just fine. you can abuse the corporate form for this purpose, and we still do it if you you know operated a real company, uh, which they're not
0: and what sort of uh reforms do you think would make a difference? you know there's the the inequality part of your subtitle at least um, and which obviously is a big problem out there in the world and it seems to be driving a lot of politics these days. Um, I wonder you know what kind of reform do you think might be made that would you know make a difference in reducing the levels of inequality that we've been facing for the last 40 years?
1: Yeah. So I think one is, of course, that is you're trying to stop um, helping the wealthy to create even more wealth. That's sort of that's that's what I've been talking up um, about so far. I think more generally we have to make sure that um, also smaller and medium-sized enterprises have can avail themselves of legal devices that protect them against financial downturns. Um, there are just still too many partnerships where they don't have a limited liability privilege to protect themselves from a downturn. You have to think about how to restructure debt for companies for um, who did not. Def- fault because of their own fault. So I think we have a huge issue coming up in you know in the aftermath of the covid crisis to think about how to restructure debt. For small, medium sized enterprises and, and, and families. And, and we have basically postponed it and kicked the can down the road because we say we're just doing moratoria, eviction moratoria, debt collection moratoria. But the reckoning will still come. And I think on that front, we really have to think about how to clean up their balance sheets too, as we cleaned up the balance sheets of the banks in the 2008 crisis. And the balance, you know, the banks have been implicated. They did what they did. And many others are being caught in a storm that they don't, can't control.
0: So maybe I'll take a risk and ask you a question since you're in Germany and I take it have some German background. um, And since we've just had this major election in Germany where Angela Merkel has left the chancellor's office for the first time in 16 years, uh, coming sort of more or less, it seems, at the tail end, we hope, of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, how have these issues affected Germany? How has Angela Merkel dealt with them? What kind of you know, inequality problems uh of the kind that you're talking about linger uh after her departure? Um what what needs to be addressed in Germany these days?
1: So I think, um, you know, inequality is not as stark, um, at first glance as it is in the United States. The social welfare system is much better. But I think if you look through the numbers, you also see, um, you know, there are very, very wealthy people. And I think the wealth creation over the last, you know, several decades has affected Germany as well. And so there are questions about solidarity. Um, I think, um, you can see in Germany that in the beginning of the COVID crisis, Angela Merkel had a lot of trust. Um, because she could explain to the people what they had to do and they were very disciplined early on. And then at some point they lost it and she wasn't really able to bring this back together. In part, this is because of, uh, you know, different parts of the, the federal government and the states, of course, going down different paths as, as well. But I think there, there was also an increasing, um, just being fed up with the government and, and, and not, not trusting them, particularly in East Germany. I think because people there have been left behind for decades and always feel that they're, um carrying more of a burden than everybody else, so I think um the new government will really have to make sure that they can um uh, deliver to those who, who have been uh left behind and I think that will not be easy given the you know the the traffic light coalition that we're talking about here with the liberal party trying to do a like you know, more, a more neoliberal move the greens are trying to exp- you know, have more expenditure for dealing with climate change and the social Democrats really have to deliver to their to their base which they had neglected long enough. Um, uh, so there are certain divisions here as well but I think a friend of mine um, in the United States who's also from Europe said, you know, in Germany they're at least talking to one another. There's coalition talks and they might not be easy but they're happening. Imagine coalition talks between the GOP and the Democrats. It's just in, inconceivable right now. So it's a very different political
0: world even as it's
1: it's difficult, but it's not insurmountable.
0: Yes, yes, it is. So, um, I know, uh, you happen to have some background in Munich, so I want to kind of tell a personal story that's relevant to the point, a point you made, which is that the social welfare system is stronger and better in Germany than it is here. Uh, but I guess my question ultimately will be, uh, you know, how much, how true is that anymore? I mean, so I was in the Munich train station. Maybe it's five, six, something like that years ago um, and was shocked to see a man, you know, probably not so different from my own age now in the you know, 62, mid 60s, perhaps uh, foraging for food in garbage cans in the Munich train station. I had never seen in all the years that I've spent in Germany uh, as an adult for the last 40 plus years, I had never seen anything like that. Um, so how is the welfare, social welfare system holding up?
1: So it has been cut back um, under these health reforms in the early 2000s. So there is less to go around. I think one also has to add to that that the influx of refugees um has meant that sort of the you know these 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 pieces of the pie that are available for people who need help um have to be shared by more so the available of even just housing etc., has become more complicated more expensive etcetera so i think that and that creates of course also a uh, resistance and and uh, anger amongst many Germans who now have to share with with people who are coming in so i think there's there's much less but I know um, quite a few people, refugees, both who came from Syria. I also know a number of German welfare recipients. They all still have a roof above their head. So there, there are. There are, of course, um, homeless. I don't want to deny that. There are also very often, um, people who are sick and who, um, uh, don't know how to work the system to get what they need. Cause you have to go through an enormous bureaucracy to make the welfare system work to you, for you. If you can't do that, you end up on the streets in, 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 in Germany as you do in the U.S. But, uh, in the U.S., even if you know how to work the system, you might still end up on the street. And I think that's probably currently the starkest difference.
0: Right. Well, I would certainly agree with your basic proposition that the social welfare system there is stronger and inequality is less stark and pronounced. Um, but uh, we still have our we still have a lot of work to do here in the United States
1: and um, in, in Germany too. You know, it's it's uh, but uh, yes, I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks very much. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Katarina Pistor of uh, Columbia Law School for sharing her insights about the recent revelations of offshore tax avoidance and our attempts to rein them in. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Boinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.